has ever been asked, what does it mean to sing in the spirit and in truth? I, I hope that you have recorded, all you need is one song that we've sung this weekend or, and this week. And that'll answer the question. That's what it means to sing and to worship in spirit and truth. Our song leaders have done an excellent job every session. And, uh, and again tonight, Brother Myron, I appreciate it, sir. Wonderful, wonderful job. Dave Ramsey, who is a uh, financial planner and advisor, is fond of making this next statement to those who come to him for financial advice and help and guidance. Here's the statement. He, he said, if you're willing to live for just a few years, whatever time it takes to pay your debt off, if you'll live for a few years like no one else will live, then you can live like no one else lives. Now, I understand I'm not a financial whiz at all. Uh, math was my least favorite subject, still is, and forever will be. But I understand what he's saying. If you're willing to, um, to sacrifice, if you're, if you're willing to give up some things and do the hard things, that no one else typically is willing to do. And when your debt is paid off, then you can live like most people will never live. What, what a wonderful thought. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. And, and it doesn't matter if it takes one year, two years, three years to pay your debt off. You're working hard. You're, maybe you don't go out to eat as often if you go out at, at, at all. Maybe you don't spend money frivolously. I, I, you know, you, you just focus on your debt and you get it paid. Most people aren't willing to do that. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, the last chapter that um, contains the latter portion of the Sermon on the Mount, in that chapter 7, Jesus presents us with seven portraits with two components in each portrait. Uh, in fact, beginning with uh, verses 1 through 5, we, we read of two judges, two evil listeners in verse 6. Verses 7 through 12, uh, two fathers. Verses 13 and 14, two ways. In uh, verses 15 and 16, there are two teachers. In, in verses uh, 17 through 23, there are two trees. And as he brings this sermon to a conclusion, in verses 24 and 27, he talks about two houses, really two foundations, two foundations. This evening, we're going to look at two of the seven. We're going to do that by beginning in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13 and 14. While you're turning, I, I really want to take just a moment to express my appreciation to, first of all, the elders of this great congregation. Um, your faith and your trust and your vision in God for hosting Focal Point this year is so deeply appreciated by every person who's here. Um, 
And, we, you know, we've heard several people talk about how uh, rough the year, last year's been, and, and it has been. I, I didn't realize just how rough it had been, and I just didn't realize it until I got here. And, and, and I'll be honest, I just, I, I broke down and started crying like a baby. Uh, just so happy to be here and, and to see uh, my brethren whom I love so very much and, and to visit with them and, and to meet some new brethren who are now friends uh, as well as my brothers. Um, Wayne, David, and, and those who helped you guys plan, um, we're thankful. Uh, a task like this doesn't just put itself together and all you have to do is type it out. It'd be nice if it would, uh, but it doesn't. I appreciate those of this congregation who have labored so, um, so dearly in preparation for this week. And as the week's here, you're still working. And I suspect there's going to be quite a bit of work after we leave. Thank you so very, very much. One, one last group that I would like to extend my appreciation to would be our, all of our speakers. Um, it, it has been so good for me to be on that side of the pulpit this week and for the balance of the week. Um, and I know that you preachers, you could amen that, you can agree with that. I know th that's how we feel. It's, it's good to be fed. And what a feast we've already had. Uh, sorry, tonight's just going to be a snack. But anyway, I, I really am grateful uh, for the speakers. Um, it, it, you, you guys make me want to be a better preacher. Thank you so much. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who will enter through it. And then in verse 14, for the gate is small, the, the way is, is narrow that leads to life, and few there are who find it. As we approach the end of the Lord's sermon, typically uh, when an invitation would be, you know, being developed, that's exactly what he's doing in the entire chapter 7. Uh, and it's not surprising that the exhortations um, and the teaching of Christ becomes more and more prominent. In, in the intensity of the ideas and the massive force of the thrust of the illustrations, there is a compelling call to action that emerges from this sermon. And in, verse, in chapter 7, we see that seven different ways, illustrated seven, seven different ways. This is a call to action. It, it, it's not a call for a show of hands at the end of a sermon like we, you know, hear so often in the religious world. It's, it's not signing a, a decision card. It, it's, it's not even an invitation to come kneel at an altar for a better felt than told kind of experience. Oh, oh, oh no, no, no. This is an invitation to come to Christ and die to self. That, that's the invitation. 
I want to make a statement or really ask a question. Um, and I want you to understand that I'm going to do this several times throughout our time together. I'm really thinking out loud. I'm not making a charge. I'm not making an accusation. I'm just help asking you to help me think. Have we Americanized the gospel of Christ and made it too cheap? Most of us here have read, at least in sorts, have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and read the book that one of the books that he wrote, The Cost of Discipleship. If you don't mind, I'm going to take a few lines from this book uh, to help illustrate what, what I'm talking about. The cross is laid on every person who would serve Christ. And the first Christ suffering which each person must experience is a call to come to Christ to abandon the attachments of this world. Now Paul would uh, explain in Romans chapter 6 that it's the dying of the old person. It's the burial in that grave uh, of water. And in that process, we yield our lives, we yield our heart, everything about us, we extend to be united in Christ's death. And, and then we share in his burial. But we also share in his resurrection in that we are raised from that grave as a new creature. We, we are a completely different person. We give our lives to death, dying to self. The cross is not some terrible end to an otherwise happy or God-fearing life. But no, this cross, it meets us at the beginning of our relationship with God. In fact, we cannot have a relationship with Christ unless we go to that cross first. You see, when Christ invites us to come to him, he calls us to come to him and die, die to self. The Apostle Paul kind of describes that transition, but more than the transition itself, he's really describing the kind of life that it looks like once one has died to self. Oh, you're familiar with it, Galatians 2.20. You know, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As Bible students, you, you quickly realize and, and understand that our Lord, our, our Master, never hesitated in any situation to present the stark realities of following Him. He didn't sugarcoat it, trying to get us, you, you know, in, in, in that way. And uh, No, he, he point blankly, let the dead bury the dead. You come with me. Uh, if, if, if you need to go home to say bye to, so you, know, you just stay on home. Put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy to follow me. Here, here's another thinking question. So think with me if you would, please. Have we presented the solemn call of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a cheapened message and and it's dressed all up with the worldly embellishments. This, this might be a, a more 
correct way to say it. In our day of uh, social meme evangelism and bumper sticker theology, have we abandoned the call of the gospel for a message of convenience rather than conviction? I mean, do we stand for anything anymore? It doesn't require a Bible scholar uh, to convince us that we're living in a day when the message of the old sweet story of salvation by the blood of Christ is being challenged. It it, it really doesn't matter where you go, uh, to school, to college, uh, work, whatever the case may be. We're being coerced to change the message of the cross of Christ to a message of social activism and a message that is devoid of one drop of the blood of Christ. And the message of the cross is being replaced by a message of prosperity and and enjoying life. You'll have no problems if you just do this. And, And that's a message that is as empty of power and hope as it is the blood of Christ. My friend, I want us to understand that a, a crossless Christ is nothing more than Jesus on our terms. But the message of the cross, Peter tells us, is one of sin, sacrifice, and salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 Peter wrote, listen, you guys know that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but we are redeemed. You are redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And and, and if, if there was any doubt, Peter removes that doubt when he adds this ending statement, the blood of Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus presents through those seven portraits two kinds of people. There are those who have heard the gospel message and they have rejected it. The other group are those who have heard the gospel message. Their hearts have been lightened The burden that they carried has been lifted. They have embraced the gospel message, the the message of Christ, and they have obeyed it. In in each of those seven illustrations, we can see one group of of those people versus each other. I I think it's interesting the way that Jesus uh, began to uncover the two ways. In in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he he does it uh, almost abruptly. The the inspired writers of the New Testament many times would use connective conjunctions to join uh, a previous thought to the following thought or, you know, vice versa. You know, words like therefore, wherefore, for, as, so, and, and many, many others. But when a connective conjunction is absent, generally there is a desire on the part of the author to enter so intimately, to to enter uh, so definitely into what he's saying that he abandons the normal desire to use those connective words. 
And in Matthew chapter 13, or Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus calls for action on a personal involvement and a personal emphasis. And, uh, and again, it's almost, almost valid the way that, that he presents that word, enter. It, it just goes from what he's been saying straight into enter. It, it isn't therefore enter, because of this enter. So you need to enter. No, it's just enter. Enter the narrow way. Or there are those who enter the broad way or gate, broad gate. You know, the, the, the figure of the way is both an Old Testament and New Testament theme. I mean, we, we recognize it in both Testaments. For example, in the first Psalm, verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In, in one of the most striking uh, uses of the word way, uh, the wise man announces in Proverbs chapter 14, verse, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. Isaiah 53, the, the inspired prophet tells us that we have each gone our way. Jesus gives us one of the most familiar uh, uses of the way when he told his apostles in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Now, <clears throat> I understand that you guys can read I get it. I, I'm not trying to insinuate anything, but I want you to pause with me to revisit that verse in your mind. And as you do so, notice the subtle but the strident word that Jesus uses. The way. The truth. And the life. And, and again, I get it. it's a simple point, but man, what a powerful point Jesus is making. There, there's, there's only one way. There's only one truth. And there's only one life. <clears throat> there are three observations uh, about the broad way and the narrow way. First of all, the uh, broad way has a wide gate. It, it's easy to enter. No, no difficulty at all. Paul reminded our brethren in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the two words that Paul uses, perishing and saved, they're both used in a manner that if the word of the cross is foolishness to us, we're already in the way of perishing. But if the cross, the preaching of the cross is the power of God, then we're already in the way of being saved. We're, we're already in the way, rather, of salvation. Now, this, this wide gate, this broad way is described uh, as roomy. Uh, it, it's a, a, a many-laned expressway. Um, it, it, it doesn't have, and I promise you, at least from what I've heard, that it doesn't have any construction barrels in it at all. 
you know, like when Department of Transportation decides to, you know, clean up some intersections and stuff. Not that y'all know anything about that, but you, you understand what I'm saying. The other way is the gate is narrow. The way is, is small. Here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture some flat open land. I mean, just as flat as flat can be. The closest thing that I've ever seen to a flat piece of property is when we uh, would happen to go into uh, Arkansas from Memphis into West Memphis. And then, you, you know, uh, man, I, I think you could see California from there. It's so flat. Or at least the Rocky Mountains. Rocky Mountains probably stopped that view. But think about how easy it would be. I've never built a road. I'm assuming it would be much easier on the flat land. It, it can be made as wide as it needs to be made. You can travel it as, as you so wish. But contrast that to the narrow way. As you think about the narrow way, I want you to think about the, the mountains of the Judean wilderness. Granite. It's just mountains of rock. And, and many times those mountains are very steep. Uh, they have uh, cliffs that, that if you made one wrong step, you, well, you get to pick. Uh, it, they're ragged. They're, they're, they're dangerous. They're not stable. Many times the smaller rocks will move. Um, and and the, if you ever have walked in such a condition, most of the time you've walked on a very narrow path where Two people can't walk side by side. You have to walk one behind the other. Broadway and the narrow way. But as we look at the spiritual implications of those two contrasting views, one way is the road of divine accomplishment. The other is the road of human achievement. One road is the religion of grace. The other is a religion of preacher make me feel good about my sinful life. One way is the way of faith and the other is the way of flesh. You know, man-made systems of religion are based for the most part on the supposition that we as human beings have the capacity and the ability to develop our own righteousness. And if you've ever in investigated any of the doctrines and uh, things, that your creed book or manual, whatever the case may be, here's what it boils down to. Now, they would never agree to this, but here's what it boils down to. Give us just a little bit of religious environment. G give us a, a few rules. Give us um, a, a few routines. Give us a couple of rituals. And, and we'll crank the rest up all by ourselves. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, pours his heart out to God for his Jewish brethren. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal of God, but that zeal is not according to to knowledge. Now notice in particular verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness. Now, we, we know that God has the divine characteristic 
of righteousness. Absolutely. He is the fullness of it. I don't know that that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. I think he's talking about the way that God makes people righteous. For not knowing about God's method of making people right, the Jews seeking to establish their own method of being made right with God, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness, the right way that God said we need to be made right of God. Now, that's the religion of human achievement. Uh, it, it, it comes under a myriad of different titles, but it's all the same system because it has been spawned out of the same source. In fact, that's the contrast that Jesus wants us to recognize and to understand in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. And if you don't mind me paraphrasing just a little bit, Jesus is saying, look, there's, there are two gates, there are two roads. One is narrow, one is the compressed divine road of righteousness, God's righteousness. The other way is broad. There, there's, there's nothing in that road except ease and an attempt to create human righteousness. But there's one more characteristic about these two ways. One of the main things about a road, okay, maybe there are two things. The main thing about most roads for me is what kind of restaurants do they have on that road? I mean, we, we, we just, listen, I'm serious. We plan our trips around where we want to eat. The main thing about a road is where it leads us. It's It's destination. And the main thing about the broad way is that it leads to destruction the main thing about the narrow way is that it leads to life first way there are many who walk therein the second way there are few who find it Ty Cobb um, has the best uh, batting average of all major league uh, players. His, his season ended, I believe, in 1928, and he played for uh, some 24 years, and his batting average is 367. That, that, that's a great batting average. I mean, he's a leader for a very good reason. That means that for every 10 times that he came to bat, he was successful, got a hit, a little over three and a half times. Can, can, can you understand why the announcers of a ball game don't announce the other side of that? You see, what it means is that while he was successful a little over three and a half times, there were a little under six and a half times that he failed. He was not successful. The normal average batting average for baseball is between maybe 250, 275, maybe a little higher. Uh, and if a batter hits over 300, you know, he's great. He's, he's 
reached a, a high point. He's considered to be one of the best. But still, that, that means that he failed seven out of ten times. Now, what, what if we carried that analogy over into various aspects of the world in which we live? I mean, what, what if, and I love doctors, I'm grateful for doctors, so if you're a doctor, I love you. But what if doctors failed seven out of uh, ten times in surgery? We might think twice about, you know, having surgery. I don't know. Hey, three, three patients made it, but, well, the seven, not so good. That's, that's not good, right? It's not good. What, what if uh, preachers only needed three sermons out of ten um, and they preached the truth in those three sermons? Well, you can do the math better than I. That means that if that's acceptable, there are ten, seven sermons out of the ten that we can preach error. I don't know um, of too many faithful elderships that allow that to go on much, if any at all. That's not good. Not good at all. I want us to understand that our Savior is, he's not weighing our sin average. That, that, that's, not his, that's not his concern. It really isn't. His concern is which gate have we entered? Which way are we traveling? And which destination will we reach? That's his concern. In Matthew 7, verse 24, beginning, Jesus made this statement, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the, the floods came, the winds blew, and it slammed against that house, and, and it stood firm, it, and it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. Well, in, in verses 26 and 27, everything is just opposite. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them, does not obey them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rains fell, the, wind, uh, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. <clears throat> Would you be surprised to learn that one of the, or that the one natural event that takes more lives in the Judean wilderness is not the heat. It, it's not lack of water. It, it's not even wild animals. It's flash floods. I had to check two or three sites just to make sure this guy was talking about, you know, he knew what he's talking about. But the desert of Judea is not like we, the deserts we typically think about. You know, not, not like the Sahara Desert or, or anything of that nature. The Judean uh, desert is ma uh, made out of mountains of granite rock. And as we described earlier, it's, it's a very dangerous place in which to be. Very dangerous. When rain does fall, and it does fall occasionally uh, in the uh, Judean uh, desert, when the rain does fall, and I'm not a, a, a geologist, uh, but I don't su suspect that the rocks absorb that much water. So here's what happens. The rain comes, 
Um, and it comes, I mean, burst of rain quickly. Well, you, you and I understand how water works. As it flows down, it, it gathers to other water. And, but, but as it comes down, it's getting the path instead of being broad is getting more narrow. And by the time that it gets to the valley or perhaps most likely a dry riverbed, a wadi, um, it, at that point there's a lot of water and the speed has increased significantly. Now as that runs down that dry water bed, the, the, the more water is being added, the volume increases, the speed increases. And because of that, if someone is walking in, in that uh, dry water bed before the water gets there, well, they're caught off guard and uh, many times they, they perish. Um, I, I, I've seen videos, perhaps you have as, as well, of, of cars uh, being washed away by one of those flash f- floods. Terrible scene. But could that be the setting of this parable? Uh, I mean, there's rock and there is sand in that, in that dry um, riverbed. Let's see, the rain fell. Yeah, that would work. The floods came definitely would work. Uh, the wind blew, yeah, slammed against that house. Very well may have been the very picture that Jesus was presenting uh, to those who were listening to his sermon. But could you imagine being there and listening to that sermon and, and thinking or running through your mind would be what Jesus said about the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they were standing or sitting on that sand and looked down and, and, and they understood that the, when the water came, it was going to wash that sand completely downstream until the, the, the river widened quite a bit, which slowed the water down and again the, the sand would settle down to the ground. It's interesting to me, the word foolish uh, that Jesus uses is a word that we typically get our word moron. Um, I don't know why that's just funny to me, but anyway. But I'm sorry. The, the, the word... The word that Jesus uses is foolish. He's talking about that kind. But I don't think he's talking about a man or a person with a mental deficiency. I think he's talking about a person with a moral deficiency. I mean, after all, he, the, the, the building of the house on sand is, is obviously a spiritual lesson. So he's talking about someone who has a moral deficiency of some Sword. A fool is a person in this setting who does not recognize the majesty and the grandeur of God, a person who does not stand in fear of God. And those who build their house on sand are like those who are blinded, so they cannot see God for who he really is. And if I can't see God for who he really is, I can't see myself as I really am. That is rather foolish, isn't it? Two houses are distinguished by one difference, the foundation. The only thing that distinguished 
these houses after the rains, after the floods, was the discovery of the true foundation. The person who built his house upon the foundation rock of Christ could very easily sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand. But the foolish man who built his house upon the sand, all he could sing is all of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Both gates are open. Both ways are available. And you're able to reach your destination in whichever road you choose. Upon which foundation are you building your life? Is it the one that's on the truth of who Christ is? Upon the reality and the power of his wonderful promises that he loves us and he cares for us and he wants us to be with him in that day. The invitation in Matthew chapter 7 is it's obvious. The call is crystal clear. There, there are two ways. One leads to destruction, the other to life. There are two houses, two foundations, one that collapses and the other that stands. I know that many times we have typically relegated the wise and the foolish man to a song, children's song that we sing at VBS or other times like that. But what a terrible lesson that we're missing out when we fail to sing that song as adults. Because it reminds us that, yes, we have the freedom of choice. That God has given us in his great wisdom and his great mercy the opportunity to choose. And with everything that his heart can ever issue or extend is a prayer, a hope, and a provision that we'll choose the narrow way that we will build our house on the solid rock. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. I, I, I want us to understand uh, uh, of the wonderful love that God has for us. All he's going to to provide a way for us to, to get to him and to be with him for all eternity. And, and this life that we're living, while it is so wonderful and amazing and, and blessed, and such an encouragement, it's only temporary. As, as we walk that road that leads to life, as we build our house upon the solid rock, I, I want us to understand that we can make a difference, not just in our life, but in the life of our family, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation and across this world as we declare the power of the gospel of Christ. Two gates, two ways, two houses, two foundations. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. 
Loving that story so tender. Clearer than ever I see. Oh no, please stay. Please stay. And let me weep. While you whisper. That love paid the ransom for me. Oh, what boundless, boundless love. Tonight, if you're not walking in the way that leads to life, there's only one other option for you. If you're not building your house on the rock of Christ, you're building it on the sand. That's not going to end well. Either way, tonight, the Lord's invitation is yours. It's mine, that if we're not a child of God, that we'll come to him. Simple faith, believing that he is who he is, believing what he's accomplished on Calvary's cross for me and for you. And that faith is, is going to lead me to repentance. It's going to lead me to acknowledge verbally with, with every ounce of my heart that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm going to be immersed in water for the remission of my sins. My brother and my sister, if you and I are not walking the way that we need to be walking, if we're not building our house as it needs to be built, why, why would we tarry? Why, why would we wait another moment? No, the, the, the risk is way too high. Way too high. Christ has given us an opportunity to repent and to ask for forgiveness, knowing that he's faithful and true. And when we do what he commands, he'll do what he promised. And the blood of Christ will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we can help you this evening, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.